This is really a, a fascinating portion of Scripture in that we have seen this theme before, except this time we have a, a different cast of characters, a different location perhaps, and a different response from the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we can, we can see the same theme permeate in many texts throughout the New Testament. And that unifying theme that we are seeing in this particular text and some of the other ones that we'll get into in a minute is that of a misunderstanding of the nature of the Messiah's arrival. In other words, since the Old Testament predicted a Messiah, which is a a deliverer or a savior to come, how was it that those living in the first century Israel would be so mistaken about how he would come? How should they know it was him? What things were they to look for? And if Jesus was the long-expected one that would crush Satan with a death blow from Genesis 3.15, and he would rule the nations with a rod of iron from Psalm 2, and if he would take up his rightful place on the throne of David from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, how is it that this Jesus that we see, who is healing ten lepers at a time, is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah? That's the question the Pharisees are asking in our text, and that's the one we need to consider as well. So if you're there with me in Luke chapter 17, I want us to read our text together this morning and invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 17 In verse 20, God's inspired and errant and infallible word says this. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God is coming, was coming rather, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word available to us in our language. And Lord, as we look at this today and we think about all of the nations that don't have the scriptures translated into their own language, it should burden us. It should grieve us. And we should, we should just be full of gratitude of what we have before us today. You've revealed Yourself in creation, and You've revealed Yourself through Your Word. So help us to treasure this this morning, God. What we don't have, give to us. What we need to know, enlighten us and strengthen us in the everlasting way. We pray all these things in the precious name of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. As Christians we must always be looking with a future focus in our faith. With one eye, we must be looking about what is called today and being watchful of the present day in which we find ourselves in. We must live by making the most of our time because the days are evil. We must live with discernment of the times and what is taking place around us. We must have one eye watchful of false prophets and false teachers and who will show false signs and wonders in order to try to lead people away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We must keep watching and praying 
so that we do not enter into temptation. We must live in a way as to, to be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us. And we must live in obedience, being ready for every good deed, as Titus 3.1 reminds us. And with the other eye, we must always be looking to the future. We must have our gaze fixed on the horizon. We must live with an eager anticipation to the second coming of our God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, understood this principle very, very well when he said it like this. He said, quote, I have but two days on my calendar, today and that day. Speaking of that day being the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther said that living in light of that coming day, that he went on to say, quote, I must live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back tonight. In other words, what he was saying is that I must be ready for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And we too as well must be always living in a state of readiness for the return of Christ. Jesus addressed this to us in Luke chapter 12, verse 36, when he told us to be dressed in readiness and be like men and women who are waiting on their master's return. We should always be in a state of anticipation and expectation. We should have oil in our lamps, trimmed and ready to meet our bridegroom. We must have our gaze riveted on the horizon, looking for our beautiful, glorious, and triumphant second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Matthew Henry put it, he said, as Christians, we must not only believe and look for, but we must love and long for the second coming of Christ. Because Jesus has indeed promised to us that he will come again. And when he does come, he will appear in a blazing glory in the sky. He will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And he will come and take ownership of the kingdoms of this world. And he will rule in righteousness and he will judge all men. But that's not how he came the first time. Because when Jesus came the first time, he came in weakness. He came born as a tender infant, born of a poor woman, placed in a manger in an obscure little town called Bethlehem. He was unnoticed except for a few shepherds. He was unhonored except by some magi from the east. And he came to suffer as a servant, to bear our sins, to be a curse for us to be despised and rejected and pierced through for our transgressions and be condemned to death on a cross. And this is the part that most of the Pharisees and the Jews missed in Jesus' day. They were looking for someone to restore Israel back to its golden age. They were looking for uh, a cosmic event, apocalyptical arrival of the Messiah, and they were looking for him to come and overthrow the occupying powers of Rome and rise up Israel once again to be the chief of all nations of the world. 
But Jesus frequently reminded them of the fact that he must go to Jerusalem and die. He told him in Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. So how could they miss this? Why did they miss this? Well, I want us to look at this text this morning under three different headings. I want us to consider the promise of the kingdom of God. I want us to look at the false assumptions of the kingdom of God. And then finally, the arrival of the kingdom of God. So first of all, looking at the promise of the kingdom of God, notice our text. It says in verse 20, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So we see here the Pharisees are asking Jesus about this coming kingdom of God. Where is this kingdom? Where would they actually get this idea of a coming kingdom of God? Now you might say to yourself, maybe it's like the synagogues and it's, it's, uh, it's in the New Testament, but it's not in the Old Testament. Or you might say, well, maybe it's like baptism and baptism's in the New Testament, but we don't see it in the Old Testament. Something happened in that 400-year intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the beginning of New, and now all of a sudden we've got this explosion of the kingdom of God talk. Well, nothing could be absolutely farther from the truth. Contrary to a pastor of a 32,000-member church in Georgia by the name of Andy Stanley, who recently said of the Old Testament, he said this, quote, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must do so as well, end quote. Listen very closely. The New Testament only makes sense if we have the Old Testament. Substitutionary atonement, the need for a priestly mediator, the prophecies regarding the identity of the Messiah, and even an understanding of the kingdom of God, if we will, it will only make sense to us if we actually stay hitched to the Old Testament. And so perhaps evangelicals need to unhitch themselves from somebody like Ann Lee Stanley, who's telling us to throw that half of your Bible away. But I digress. So first of all, let's answer this. What is the kingdom of God? What does the Bible mean when it says the kingdom of God? And is it, in fact, an Old Testament concept? Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, defined it as this. He said, quote, The rule of God established and acknowledged in the hearts of sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones simply defined the kingdom of God as the reign of God. But he went on further and said that the kingdom of God is the rule of God. It is the reign of God. It means the coming of righteousness. The coming of peace. It means that evil is controlled and defeated. It means that God's blessings are showered down upon us as Christians. It means that we have become heirs of God with a hope of everlasting bliss. That is what the kingdom of God is. And the reign of God and the kingdom of God is all over the scriptures. Even the establishment of his kingdom has been such a predominant theme of the Lord Jesus Christ that it was the single number one thought on the minds of the disciples as he was ascending up into heaven. This is the question that they had to know the answer from Jesus before he left them in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. They said, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom 
to Israel. They knew he was a king, but when was this kingdom coming? It occupied their thoughts. It was the single most important question in their hearts that they could ask him as he was ascending up into heaven. It was transfixed on their minds in the disciples, let alone the Pharisees in our text. And that is because as we read the Gospels and we look into what Jesus taught the disciples, the kingdom of God is the predominant theme of his message and is actually one of his very purposes for appearing on this earth. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He said as much in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Preaching the kingdom was his goal, and it was his determined objective. The Father in eternity past sent his Son to be a herald for the message that only God will reign. Only God will be king. Only God will rule. And you could go so far to even say that not only was the kingdom of God the predominant theme in the teachings of Jesus, you could also say that it is one of the unifying themes of the Old and New Testaments. It's a golden thread that weaves the two together. Now it is true, you will not find the expression kingdom of God in the, New, or excuse me, in the Old Testament. But if you were to broaden this kingdom of God expression and look at some other concepts such as king or kingdom or reign or throne, you would find that the kingdom theme is present in no less, ladies and gentlemen, of 36 of 39 Old Testament books. And you would find this theme in 21 of the 27 New Testament books. That's 86% of the Bible talks about a kingdom theme. It is foundational. It is elementary. Now, in the Old Testament, in relation to God and his kingdom, we can see as far back as when Moses was bringing God's people through the Red Sea. And as God released the waters back to destroy Pharaoh's army, we see Moses break out into song as he sings to God in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 18. He says, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. He sings and declares, God will reign and God will rule and God will be king eternally and forever. When Isaiah sees his heavenly vision in Isaiah chapter 6, and he looks up and he sees the Lord. He's sitting on his throne. He's lofty. He's exalted in the train of his robe. It says it filled the temple. And as R.C. Sproul once said, even inanimate objects such as the threshold of doorways had the good common sense to tremble at the voice of the Lord. And the seraphim are flying around, around the throne, and they're saying, holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah responds in verse 5 by saying this, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Psalms are filled with kingdom talk. Psalm 47 verse 2 says this, the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 48 says, God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. And that's Psalm 47, verse 8. Psalm 93, 1 says this, the Lord reigns. 
He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. I want you to please note that Satan does not reign. There's not this cosmic tug of war going on between God and Satan where sometimes God wins and sometimes Satan wins. It says in the text, the Lord reigns. No president reigns, no dictator reigns, no rogue leader reigns, no pope reigns, no pastor reigns. It says that only the Lord reigns. Psalm 145 verses 11 through 13 says this, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all the nations. We could go through on and on throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, but for the sake of time, if we were to continue into the New Testament, We're going to see this over and over again, that it would be actually the Lord Jesus Christ who would indeed be this reigning king. Because in John 1.49, Jesus is called the king of Israel. In John 18.39, he is called the king of the Jews. In 1 Timothy 6.15 and Revelation 17.14, he is called the king of kings. In 1 Timothy 1.17, he is called the king, eternal, immortal, and invisible. He is called the king of nations in Revelation 15.3. And just like in Exodus 15 from Moses, his reign is said to be forever and ever in Revelation 11.5 and 22.5. Even the angel told Mary in Luke 1.33 that the son that is about to be born to her He said, quote, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And remember last week, we looked at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. In the first petition, we have, Father, hallowed be your name. Meaning, God, let your name reign supreme. Let your name be treasured and revered among all the peoples. Let your name be high and lifted up and exalted above all. But the very next petition is where Jesus teaches us to pray, Your kingdom come. In other words, let your glorious reign and rule be and be seen and known among all the nations. Let the people of the world bow down and worship in adoration to King Jesus. And likewise, let your glorious rule and reign be felt and treasured within the depths of my heart. Let this permeate down into my bones. Your kingdom come, you rule, you reign over me, Lord. That's why we're praying, Lord, your kingdom come. And so the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the predominant themes in all of sacred scripture. But even more so, if we were to take it even further, seeing, uh, seeking the kingdom of God should be the first priority, the predominant theme in your Christian life. Not only is it a dominant theme in Scripture, but it should be the theme of your life. If we were to enter into the, the house of your Christian life, this would be on the front porch as we come in. In Matthew 6, Jesus taught us, but seek first what? His kingdom. Seek His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. This is a statement of priority for you. 
This is not just a uh, step one and then you go down and do the other lines for Christ. This isn't just saying check a box and be able to say, I've sought Christ, I'm in his kingdom by adoption, I have him, now I can move on. No, this means that you should do something continually from this point and from now on. Because the word seek and seek first his kingdom is one of a perfect active imperative tense, meaning that it's not a one-shot deal for you. It literally means for you to seek and continually to keep seeking. It's an exhortation for you and I to seek and keep seeking all the more. It's a command for you to crave and to desire and to endeavor it all the more. But seeking the kingdom should be the first priority for you as a believer. It should be your number one priority. It should be your primary concern. Practically speaking, it's like this. It means you long to know him by digging deeper into his word. It means you desire to commune with him in private devotion and prayer. It means you are constantly on the watch for ways that you can serve him and his church. This means that you serve him by being a witness, his witness, and evangelizing. This means that you try to walk in obedience to his commands. It means you try to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. It means that you watch your heart and all of your affections. It means you say no to temptations. It means you control your tongue so that no unwholesome word proceeds from your lips, but rather the giving of thanks. It means you hold your possessions so loosely that you are willing to give up anything for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. It means that your life is no longer your life, but it's his life. It means that your time is no longer your time, but it is his time. It means that your money is no longer your money, but it is his money. It means that anything and everything in your life comes under the subjection, the rule, and the reign of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything, all that you are, all that you have, are completely surrendered to your King, Jesus Christ. Does that describe you this morning? Is the kingdom of God a priority in your life that you are actively looking for ways to learn of your King, to serve your King, to commune with your King, and to obey your King? The Pharisees... They wanted a king as well. But they wanted Jesus to come and expel their Roman occupiers and restore Israel back to its greatness of its golden age. And they wanted a king simply for his benefits, not for his person. We can see that in John chapter 6 and verse 15. Jesus had just got done with this extraordinary miracle of feeding the 5,000. And it says that Jesus was perceiving that they were intending to come to take him by force to make him a king and that he withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. They perceived that he was a prophet, and they had never seen a miracle like that before, and they wanted to take him to Jerusalem and set him up as their king. But he would have nothing of it, and he withdrew himself from there. And that brings us to our second point in the second half of verse 20 and the beginning of verse 21, and that is the false assumptions of the kingdom of God. He answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. In other words, what he is saying is, 
that the kingdom of God won't come in the way that you think. Your eschatological expectations are wrong. It won't come with pomp and circumstance. It won't come with fanfare and grandeur. And as I mentioned before, they were looking for this cosmic event, this apocalyptic arrival of their Messiah, and they were looking for him to come and overthrow the occupying powers of Rome and rise up to Israel once again to be the chief nation of the world. They were looking for a king to come in, to take names, and to rout all of their political enemies. But even John the Baptist didn't understand this. Remember John the Baptist as he sat in the prison, Macheris, in Luke chapter 7, and he starts to look around himself in his current situation, and he hears the story of the, the healings rather than the judgment, the raising of the dead rather than the separation with fire, and he is plagued with doubt. He's wondering, where is this winnowing fork? Where is this axe that is laid to the root? Where is the fire of judgment? And he sends two of his disciples to go ask Jesus if he is the expected one. And in verse 20, we see him do that. And they come to him, they say, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? I mean, John's in prison and he's hearing all these stories of miracles and healings. And John's sitting there wondering, is this the kingdom of God that I said was at hand? And Jesus replies in verse 22 and he says to him, he says, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so Jesus displays this awesome power and authority over the physical world and the spiritual world, and he tells back, he says, go tell John what you've seen and heard. And if you'd notice in that text in the NASB, Blind receive sight, and the poor have the gospel preached to them are capitalized in that text. Meaning this, that it is an Old Testament verse. When you see in the Bible, in the New American Standard specifically, capitalized letters, it's used to tell you that this is an Old Testament quotation. So the first one, Jesus tells John, he says, Hey, remember Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 of the prophecy of, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the death will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And the second one he tells John, he says, Remember Isaiah 61, verse 1, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. And so what Jesus was telling John, or trying to tell John, is that, Can't you see that these are the signs of the coming kingdom. Can't you see the power of God at work here? No one has ever done anything like this before. No one has ever worked such miracles. Can't you see that the mighty power of God is here, and it is here within me, and it has been given to me by my Father through the Spirit? The kingdom of God has come in the power and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the Pharisees, when the Messiah come, he was supposed to do it with these great signs and destroy all these enemies, reestablish Israel as their national sovereignty and prosperity, and rule over all the nations of the face of the earth. And yet they had no concept of a spiritual, internal kingdom. They had no idea that it would come through the person and work of Christ. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in our third point, and that is the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in verse 21, For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, ta-da, here I am. I'm the one who's come down from heaven. I'm the bread of the life. I am the light of the world. I am the one who has come down from the glory of my Father to take on human nature. And you Pharisees may be looking for a political revolution, but I am here for a revolution of hearts. Because the kingdom of God is the realm in which God rules and reigns. And the kingdom is presence wherever men and women have subjected themselves to God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm here to establish my kingdom and those who have believed that I indeed am the son of God. I'm looking for those who will be constrained by my love. I'm looking for those who are willing to take up their cross, deny themselves, follow me and submit themselves to my lordship and my reign in their hearts and do so because they love me. Paul said in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus has come in their midst for salvation. But he will come again one day for judgment. And he will return in an awesome display of power and glory. Because when Jesus returns a second time, he will return on a mighty steed with his hair that is white as wool. And his eyes will be like flames of fire and his feet will be like burnished bronze and his voice will be like the sound of many waters. And he will come for judgment. Question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. It says this, What comfort is it to you that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? It's a peculiar phrase because I think most people would say, How terrifying is it to you that Christ shall return to judge the living and the dead? But it asks, What comfort is it to you? And the answer is this, In all my sorrows and persecution, with uplifted head, I wait for the very one who offered himself to the judgment of God for me. I wait for that very same one who has removed all curse from me. The only way you and I are going to escape the judgment of this mighty king is by settling out of court ahead of time. By bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Not tomorrow, but today. Today is a day of salvation. And I want to quote Michael Reeves on this because he said it far better than I would. He said this, We need to dwell on this because we must be careful as we talk about the blessings, the many blessings the Lord will bring on His return. Because our constant danger is that we will set our hearts on the blessings and not on Him. That we'll long for the Messianic banquet and not for the Messiah. That we'll long for the crown that He'll give us and not for the King Himself. But before all else, the delight of the saints in glory is the enjoyment, the head-filling, the heart-melting enjoyment of Christ. And when the saints are in their right mind now, that's how they think even now. Paul wrote to the Philippians when he was in prison. Do you remember his bind? 
He wasn't sure what he wanted to do, what he wished for, but he knew his desire. And do you remember how he phrased it? He said, my heart or my desire is to depart and be with what? Do you remember those words? He said, my desire is not to depart and to be in heaven. He said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far much better. For Paul, heaven would not be heaven without Christ. This is the great promise of the Old Testament. I myself will be with them. That's what we want. The bridge or the bride longs to be with the bridegroom more than anything else. Improving everything else, our hope is that we will be with him. And dear friend, if that doesn't make sense to you, I don't think you have grasped the glory of Christ. If anything else could rival for his affections, I don't think you would know him very well. What can you compare to him? God will be the glory and the delight of the saints. That is what we are designed for. That is the heart of the eternal life that we have been given. You see, eternally, God the Father has found his happiness in knowing and contemplating his beautiful and all-perfect Son. And on that day when he returns, we will be allowed to fully share in the Father's happiness and satisfaction. We're being brought into his own pleasure in his Son. We will see him. We will have perfect joy because we will be with him. So we can talk about the wonders of the new creation, all the wonders of bodies set free from sin and unrighteousness. But at the heart of it all, at the heart of the Christian hope, the pleasure of looking forward is that we will be with Christ. We will be with Him. And through the tough times, brothers and sisters, through the tough times, set your mind on that thought that someday you will be with Him. The One who shed His blood for you. The one who will never stop caring for you. The one that has given you the Father's love eternally and perfectly. The one who is coming to destroy all of his and our enemies. We will be with him. He will be the jewel in the crown of our hope, the fountainhead and the source of all blessing. And beloved, this is really the connection to the previous text with the one who came back in gratitude and praise, the leper that was healed and he came and he fell at the feet of Jesus in worship. Ten came for healing. Nine came for the benefits, but only one came back to worship. Do you worship Christ? Do you long to be with Him? Because the kingdom of God is found in the person and the work of Christ. Does he reign in your life or have you dethroned him and placed something else in its place? Have you submitted to his rule in your life? Is the kingdom of God a priority for you? Is it your aim that you are actively looking for ways to learn of your king, to serve your king, to commune with your king, and to obey your king? Is Christ everything to you? And you see Him as the lily of the valley, the bright morning star. He is the fairest of 10,000 to your soul. And if you had 10,000 lives to give to Jesus Christ, you would give every single one. Is this you this morning? Is Christ everything to you? If the answer is yes, then you have entered the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God has entered into you. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for our glorious, beautiful, perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to delight in him above all things in our lives. Help him to be the pearl of great price, our treasure, our satisfaction, and our joy. So many things in this world are clamoring for us to set it up as our king. But let us have just one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may your kingdom come. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.